Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's Sunday, September 25, 2022, and welcome to the 32nd episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Subscribe to the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and the forthcoming book The Midnight Kingdom. Jared Yates Sexton. Jared, welcome back to The Weekend Thank Show. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Uh, just before we start, your forthcoming book is, is kind of aptly timed, isn't it? Just tell us a little bit about The Midnight Kingdom. Yeah, The Midnight Kingdom uh, is more or less my explanation of this crisis that we're facing, uh, this anti-democratic crisis, rising authoritarianism. Uh, I really wanted to go back um, in time and really start to understand the forces that are at play here, the ideologies, the philosophies, the politics, the the, the movements that are, that are really putting us in danger. And so I, I was able to I think supplement a lot of the uh, missing knowledge or missing ideas in history that I, I think, unfortunately, we're not always aware of. And uh, to take an overly simplified idea of what's happening right now and really get in depth into it and try and wrap my head around not only what we're facing, but how we might actually move past it. Uh, the UN General Assembly has been uh, operating this last week. Uh, uh, it's a you know gathering of uh, of all the United Nations mem- member uh, members, and, and in fact they're in person for the first time in in a couple of years. Which is it's been interesting as to how many world leaders have come together. Uh, Biden went and he spoke, but uh, the uh, General Assembly leader Antonio Guterres he's actually spoken out on growing geopolitical divisions, increasing inequality the failure of nations to move quickly to tackle the climate crisis. But what was noticeable about his State of the World speech on Tuesday was the no-nonsense language, the, the gloomy tone, the focus not just on the breadth of challenges confronting, he called it a splintering world, but his solutions, the repeated plea to those in power that there is still hope and time for action. It reminded me a little bit of... of Sir David Attenborough, who's the wonderful narrator, British narrator, who on his, you know, he's very old, he's in his late 90s now, and on his current documentaries, he's focusing everything on climate change because he knows he's not going to be around for, for long. And he's basically now saying, the planet's going to die unless you do something about this. It, it, it's, it's, these people are not mincing their words. Yeah, and and for good reason. I mean, this is a problem that has been well-known and well-documented and forecasted since at least the 1950s. And this is one of the major problems is that the drivers of this, the corporations, the fossil fuel companies, they've known about this forever. 
And because they've known about it and their role in it and they've prioritized their own profiting, um, they've tried to hide this. They've actually gone so far as to weaponize information and science and more or less, you know, destroy any sort of an objective reality. Like that was that was a, a, an intentional destruction that has uh, occurred. But now that we're facing the um, – I, I would say the beginnings of it, but we've seen this for a while. You know, we, We've had these little canary in the coal mine moments like a Hurricane Katrina here in the United States where we realize that these things are getting out of control and that our governments aren't necessarily capable of handling uh, their, their fallout. The problem now and, – and this helps to explain a lot of the developments that we're seeing, rising authoritarianism in the United States and around the world, uh, attacks on democracy, as well as the invasion of Ukraine and this sort of new uh, multipolar world that we're starting to experience. You know, in, in And a post-pandemic of- world as well where, where goods are not moving and, and grain right. is not shifting. And and one of the things that has happened here is that going back into the 1980s and then in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States created this new global structure, right? It was global capitalism and the way that everything locked into place was supposed to create cheap goods and, you know, this sustainable idea of growth. Um, everybody knew back then and everybody knows now that there is no such thing as perpetual sustained growth without consequences. <laughs> and now all of a sudden we're sort of peering into the future. Future. And without knowing it, we're looking at dwindling resources. We're looking at um, mass redistribution of wealth, power, and even human beings. I mean, the the, the fact is, you know, this immigration crisis that uh, you know people like to tout now on the right wing, um, it's only going to grow worse and worse and worse. And this helps explain a lot of rising authoritarianism, cruelty, xenophobia, you name it. But the point is, there is a crisis on the horizon. And if we were a sane world, if we were a world that actually, you know, understood reality and, the, and, 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 you know, what's to come, and we actually wanted to change things, we might be able to avoid this catastrophe. The problem is that a world that is constructed the way that this one is, that takes advantage through capitalism on our own self-interest and doesn't worry about others and or the consequences of our actions, um, that is setting us on a direct course with an absolute cataclysmic type situation. And a lot of what we're watching in politics and with economics right now is simply a rearranging of things to uh, be prepared for that catastrophe or people trying to take advantage of it in order to sort of overturn the global order that we're in. And it's going to lead to worsening and worsening crises. And again, unless we change course, and my God, I hope that we do, um, this authoritarianism we're seeing is going to rise in concert with the approaching disaster. Isn't the problem that all of these things, whether it be the rise of fascism or the you know, the, the, the geopolitical problems that Guterres is talking about. They don't happen on one day. It's not like this is the day it's all going to change. It's gradual. It, it happens over, over time, over, over decades. And you and I could be having the same conversation 20 years ago with a slightly different perspective on the world. But, you know, before Donald Trump and before the whole um, populist movement, we could be having a very similar conversation based on how life was before and how life is now and where it's heading. But at this moment in history, it's becoming slightly more terrifying. And this is the reason why Guterres and Attenborough are using this explicit language, one from a socioeconomic perspective and the other from a natural world perspective, is that 
we're now talking in terms of like a few years or a decade. Like they've actually put a they've put a a finite date on this, a tipping point. It's almost as if America is just not open. The thinking of Americans is not are not open to the idea that there is a ticking clock. Yeah, and it's it's really hard for Americans to wrap their heads around this. Like on one hand, you and I are having this conversation. We can talk about deep politics and the socioeconomic currents, right? But for a lot of people actually confronting this and, – and you'll notice the way that Americans deal with it is through movies or through commercials, you know, these sort of like – very, very thin veneers. Um, you know, you, you start to see that Americans are told, well, guess what? You can avoid climate catastrophe if you recycle. You can avoid it if you buy this product. You can avoid it if you, you know, just somehow or another through your consumer efforts make a change. That's not how any of this works. Like it takes a massive existential shift. And part of the reason and, – and, and I hate to boil it down to make it this simple but it is – Part of the reason that we're facing this catastrophe is because Americans have been guaranteed a consumer paradise uh, with cheap goods and readily available goods. And people don't really want to give that up. They, we have shown in America that we have a culture of um, capitalist, consumerist uh, entitlement. You know, you can't tell me that I can't go to Fuddruckers unless I wear a mask. You know, it, it's, it's an yeah. absurdity, but it's true. But, but the mask is made by China. And this is the, the other kind of spanner in the works of this conversation is that there's so much political anti-China rhetoric and anti-globalist rhetoric, which is often used as, oh, this, maybe this is the solution. Yes, but actually, we can't do anything without China. China very much is the fabric of the cheap goods that we've enjoyed and this capitalist movement that we think will last forever. Well, I got bad news on that front because this is another component and key of the key piece of this puzzle, which is if we were going to actually uh, uh, avoid this disaster, it would take deindustrialization. We would have to move away from like mass, mass industrialization. And right now, because America created this global economy, right? And, and China, by the way, took full advantage of that. They went ahead and they used America's need for cheap goods and the offloading of industry to go ahead and turn themselves into a rival for power. Well, now that we're starting to see the American sort of hegemonic experiment like, you know, run up against literally a new axis, you know, we're starting to see how China, Russia, Iran, all these countries are starting to talk to one another. And like, you know, everybody thought Russia was going to fall apart after the invasion because it got cut out of the Western capitalistic machine. Well, guess what? China said, we're, we're offering you a bypass, right? So you're starting to see the emergence of the multipolar world that the U.S. has been trying to avoid forever. So something has happened, and this is actually really, really important in our larger conversation today, which is you're starting to see a push for reindustrialization within the United States, which is, you know, everything from like the amount of money that we're putting into making uh, microchips now or, you know, technological chips. Like we just invested so much money in that to create these new uh, factories. And if you listen to the far right and the Republican Party, it's all about creating these factories. It's all about reindustrialization. But here's the problem. America cannot compete in industry, and this is the reason we lost industry in the first place. Minimum wage, regulations, all of these things that make sure that it's more expensive to, you know, produce in America than elsewhere. 
Well, that means, Anthony, unfortunately, that minimum wage regulations, those types of things, they need to go away. And this is part of what the push with the GOP is right now. So instead of shifting in an existential philosophical way away from producing of these goods, the way we're going to handle this new threat of a multipolar world is we're going to double down on it, only we're going to go ahead and have it back in the United States. And we're going to have to push, again, a rollback of the progress of the 20th century, workers' rights, protections, minimum wage, you name it. Do you think that... Um, the strategy of the GOP. I mean, we know, obviously, that the Republicans have always been conservative. That is by nature of, of their their ethos. But in recent years, Do- Donald Trump's version of, of uh, you know, make it in America, that was more about uh, racism and, uh, you know, xenophobia than it was about industry, wasn't it? And And I guess that we now find ourselves in a bit of a situation because Joe Biden has had to follow on because he knows that that was successful, that, that the idea that Americans do buy into, you know, made in America. So, although saying that, you know, and I don't want to be too critical of the American car industry, but most people I know would rather choose a, a German-made vehicle than an American-made vehicle if they want it to last. But But Joe Biden's having to bring... Uh, industry back to America, as you say, with chips and other things. But it it, it kind of leaves a void now. You know, China is starting to build their version of the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. They're just about to unveil it. You know, they can make airplanes far cheaper than Seattle can. Yeah, absolutely. And and this this entire sort of swing, it's it's actually kind of strange. You see this in movies sometimes where like time goes in reverse and like people are moving backwards and you see everything that has been constructed start to uh, deconstruct itself. This American order that we've talked about is now in full-blown retreat going backwards to try and recapture something that was given away with uh, global capitalism, right? Because, you know, you brought up the Republican Party in terms of conservative. Well, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. But basically, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were in complete consensus in the creation of this global capitalist order. Neoliberalism uh, replaced the consensus of the New Deal. Basically, um, during the New Deal, you went ahead and you had a social safety net. You know, you went ahead and you provided for people. You injected money into the into the economy and gave people jobs. You made sure that they were protected. And we understood that's how you kept this thing rolling forward. Well, we've now reached this neoliberal consensus, which basically says the government should not invest in the well-being of people. That's actually tyranny if you go and you look at their ideology. (laughs) And instead, we just want to create market economies. Democracy is dangerous. We'll go ahead and create this like anti-democratic sort of a system. Well, now what the Republicans are doing is going back to what you said about Donald Trump with racism and with the xenophobia. They are now running in opposition to the exact system that they created with every intention of just perpetuating it. And the only way that you can make this work now is to go ahead and make sure that Americans get paid less money, that they're not protected, that the 40-hour work week goes away, you know, that the weekend goes away. It's that rolling back of all this progress. And deregulation is a big part of their of their pledge, isn't it? And, and yeah, for some it, reason, people think that deregulation is good. And it, a lot of that is to do with is, is semantics, linguistics. You know, to, to deregulate sounds like 
smaller government, you know, less rules and people, fewer rules, sorry, and people do buy into that. But it's very unhelpful because you need both, don't you? You need to invest in America, but you also need to invest with workers who are paid properly and, and, and are not overworked. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, to go ahead and put this into a context, like look at something like a Roe v. Wade, correct? Like everybody said, oh, the Republicans will never get rid of Roe v. Wade. And guess what? People will be in the streets. There will be mass riots if that ever happens. Then all of a sudden it happens. And what is the excuse the Republicans give? Well, it upsets God, right? This upsets some, you know, religious sort of an idea. That's not what it was about. It was about controlling women, but it was also about the fact that American demographics are on the decline. Like our population is not growing as it needs to constantly. And guess what? If you're going to reindustrialize a society, you kind of need some workers. And on top of that, you need workers to go ahead and make up for all of the people who died during COVID. Because we also have a weird thing that's happening in America now, which is because there are more jobs than there are people to fill them, the people who can fill them have all the leverage. So they can pick and choose. They can demand higher wages. And higher wages income. are going up because of that. We've seen, we've exactly. seen it. Yeah. And then on top of that, they start organizing and they start, you know, uh, having like labor. And you'll even see there was like a weird statistic came out a couple of weeks ago that kind of shocked a lot of us, which was approval of labor unions are at a record high since like the 1960s. And that includes with Republicans. So what do you do? You go ahead and you, I don't know, you cause something like a recession. You raise interest rates. You cause a little bit of pain to try and make people go back to work. Eventually, you're going to have this rolling back of all the progress that we thought was never going to get rolled back. But you can't just say we're going to get rid of the 40-hour work week. You can't just say your weekends are gone. You have to clothe it in something, some sort of a narrative, some sort of an ideology. This is where something like Trumpism but also Christian nationalism comes in, right? Because in the past, you would have a lot of people who would labor and they wouldn't get paid enough. They would give their bodies, all of this. But there was a narrative, right, Anthony? And the narrative was, I'm doing my part for America, right? I'm part of the great American dream and maybe it'll work out. Or uh, I'm, you're, you're a patriot. It's that, it's that word that is, is weaponized. Right. And, and, and actually, like all of our sort of systems of living are riddled through with this. Like masculinity is absolutely tailored for that purpose. I don't get paid a lot. I don't have good relationships. My life is terrible, but I'm, I'm, I'm martyring myself for my family. Well, what's happening now in all of this is you have the real actual political economic reasons for these things happening. And then over top of them, you have stories. And so now it's going to be an American revival. We're fighting China. That's why you have to work longer hours hours and take less money. You're doing it as a patriot, but also as a Christian. And this is why women are going to be put under the thumb of this. This is why people are going to be forced to give birth to even like someone who has violated them or, you know, committed some sort of a crime on them. It is the pairing of those political socioeconomic purposes along with those stories that keeps this machine humming. And the problem here is it's all very predictable. Like anybody who's paid attention to this for years and kind of put together like the history and how it works in cycles, it's very obvious where this is going and we can avoid it. And I remain hopeful that we will, but we have to sort of move past a lot of these old preconceived notions that we have like progress only goes in one way, which is exactly what authoritarians want you to believe as they're rolling back time. And and in all of this, we're seeing that progress of the 20th century. It's not only vulnerable, but it's on the chopping block right now. And it has to be for this flawed, dangerous system to continue. 
let's just bring it to now. We are two months out from the midterms, yep. less than less than two months, and and this is. You know, commentators were like, well, Roe v. Wade is going to have a huge um, mm-hmm. uh, shift, make a huge shift for, for uh, the Democrats, very, a very positive shift. But there is this other problem and of misrepresentation or, or underrepresentation, whereby, and I'm talking about the GOP specifically, that the people that are putting in policies, and we're seeing this now with DeSantis and he's, you know, yeah. de- deporting people out of Florida and sending them, told them they were going to Boston, they ended up in Martha's Vineyard, that these types of extremist policies are not representative of Floridians or the rest of the country. And that the GOP has is, is, um, created a, a, a kind of manifesto pledge for itself that only works amongst its group of uh, far-right extremist Christian nationalist fascists. But most people even Republicans are not like that. So could this backfire? Uh, we know it will backfire with, with abortion, but with immigration, could it backfire? Well, in all of this, um, so one of the things about the Republican Party, which actually sort of vexes, going back to preconceived notions, right? A lot of the time when we talk about modern politics, people sort of throw up their hands and they say, Republicans are doing things that are going to hurt their electoral chances. Why would they do that? Don't they understand politics? And the problem here is that the Republican Party is, at this current moment, a minoritarian group. They're historically unpopular. They're not worried about growing themselves. And in a democracy, in an actual democracy, that would destroy the party. They would go away. They would cease to exist and they would be replaced by somebody who actually reflected a larger populist identity and or ideology. But here's the thing. They don't have to. They don't have to worry about winning elections, right? And and we even saw this with what happened with Lindsey Graham recently who brought out this 15-week abortion ban, which is – I want to say it's something like 70 percent, 75 percent of Americans just uh, – they're not on board with. They see this as extreme. But here's the deal. America has been created with specifically minoritarian systems that go ahead and privilege a wealth class that the Republican Party happens to completely represent. So the, the electoral college and right. the, the the system in which the voting is done, as well as the cheating that's currently going on as we speak with the manipulation of these districts. Right. And, and, and you look at recent history, the Republican Party has had one president, I believe, since nine since 88, who has won uh, a popular vote yeah. as, as in the presidency. But you take a look at something like the Senate. They don't actually need to take over the Senate. The Senate rules and the Senate traditions, particularly things like the filibuster and also the way that, you know, we appropriate seats. Uh, uh, you know, a state like Delaware or a state like Wyoming has as many votes as California. The way that those minoritarian systems are set up, they don't have to win elections. And on top of that, the Supreme Court, which they have stolen, is another minoritarian system that is there to protect the rights of the wealthy. And here's the third part, which is sort of brings this whole thing into full bloom. They've also discovered, due to Donald Trump and and his sort of reckless disrespect for everything, they've also discovered there is absolutely no consequence, whether political, economic, and or um, electorally, to den- or legally to denying election losses. You can simply say we didn't lose and, and I deny this. So 
as that takes place, the Republican Party really does not have to worry about being popular ever again because things are gerrymandered and things are rigged in such a way and they have had a process that's been going on and on and it will continue of disenfranchising people. So they, they're not playing the same game. It brings us to what the Democratic Party is and what they represent in, in opposition to this. That's a different question entirely. And I would go ahead and argue that question of the Democratic Party and what they do in opposition to the Republicans is actually the crux of this and if whether or not we can avoid these consequences. But the Republican Party is not interested in winning hearts and minds. It is literally about expressing the intentions of the wealth class who, again, want to go ahead and roll back progress and, and exploit people further and will the system work with them. And unfortunately, this system was specifically designed to privilege people like them in the position that they're in. Well, Kevin McCarthy unveiled the campaign video on Thursday, which um, is basically him on camera cut with a lot of stock footage of, you know, police doing policing. And <laughs> it was just it was just terrible. It was like the worst kind of corporate video you can imagine. But the theme is the same old stuff, you know, that, that we are fighting for working people and that we, you know, and patriots, as we said earlier. But there's absolutely no specific policy information in it. It is just gloss. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy is a very uh, accomplished actor. Um, he, you know, some of us can see through it, but he is a very convincing player. And people will watch that and they'll be like, yeah, I want my America back. And so, you know, migrants and trans people and anybody who's not white and Christian and cis is being used as a scapegoat in these in these types of campaign videos. And tragically, for the lack of policy coming out of the GOP, kind of doesn't really matter, as you say, because A, they're behind the scenes, they're cheating, but B, they're making such broad statements about the ideal America that they that they want, that, that white people will kind of be interested in, that they don't really have to do much work, do they? Because of the inherent kind of racist nature of their of their people. Yeah, and, and historically, this is how it always works. I mean, one of the things that I found writing The Midnight Kingdom is that conservatism is built on this. It's from the very, very beginning. It's that there are evil conspiracies hiding just out of frame, you know, just in the shadows. And unless you allow us to carry out our, our agenda and whether you give us complete power, they'll destroy you. And, and here's – actually, I want to go ahead and point this out because this is an important thing that you and I can talk about because we're on the platform that we're on. We have the time that we can do it. And by the way, you're interested in frank, honest conversation. Those videos and those appeals of law and order, right, and of, of, of making sure that like the evil masses don't uh, get out of control – that's not just focused at their base because their base is obviously just riddled through with white supremacist paranoia. But that also – and historically this has been proven to be true. It's also focused at the middle class, particularly middle class white voters. And so one of the things that we find in America and, – and I'm sure a lot of people have been vexed by this so I wanted to touch on it. People are saying, why is CNN moving rightward, right? Why is it that after DeSantis pulls this – absolutely cruel, inhuman stunt with these with these migrants, why is the media calling it uh, a protest? Why is the media treating this like it's anything besides a fascistic stunt? And here's the reason why. 
secretly in societies such as America and in these major nations, you have a middle class that likes to say that it's, you know, it cares about people, you know, it doesn't want people exploited, it doesn't want people hurt. But deep down, they also are terrified of any type of movement or energy or changes or trajectories that might actually endanger their wealth their power. This is one of the reasons why, you know, at least once a week, if not multiple times a week in the New York Times, you'll see an article that equates January 6th with wokeness on campuses, right? Because the idea is that wokeness, which is just sort of a catch-all like CRT for anything that makes these people uncomfortable. Basically, at this point, that middle class, and this is how fascist movements grow. This is how authoritarian movements grow. People like to pretend, oh, Adolf Hitler, the way he spoke, Anthony, it was just so good people couldn't help themselves and they were just hypnotized. No, that's not what happened. The Nazis told the middle class and the upper class, we'll protect you from the leftists, we'll protect you from the socialists. And they were like, you know, I don't like your tactics. They make me uncomfortable, but absolutely, I'll put the armband on, that's fine. What's happening now is that the Republican Party is more or less making an appeal to the middle class, including the media, the political class, you name it. People who say, I'm against this, I'm totally against this. They're saying, you may not like us, but to borrow a phrase from a really good movie, A Few Good Men, you need us on that wall, right? You don't like what we're doing. You don't like what happens. But if we keep that violence out from underneath your nose, if we do it just out of sight and you know that we're doing it, We'll make a deal here. And as those resources start to dwindle, as going back to the beginning of our conversation, climate change starts creating mass immigration crises, particularly with people of color. All of a sudden, you need a strong man, right? Somebody who's going to take care of this. And a lot of these people right now who are anti-Republican, they're coming around on it. And basically, we're watching Donald Trump start to recede from the national stage a little bit. The Republican Party wants to move beyond him. They want to go to Ron DeSantis. We're going to see our media normalize DeSantis because he's not Trump. He's not embarrassing. He's not absurd. He's disciplined. So you, that is one of the reasons we're starting to see this rightward turn is because a lot of the people were actually protesting Trump personally and the way that he brought all of this stuff up in public and made it open as opposed to making the promise like McCarthy has done and like Republicans do, we'll maintain order, we'll protect you, which is a deal that a lot of the time the white middle class will most definitely take. I, I want to deal with some specifics about how – uh, Kevin McCarthy, in this video, for example, mm -hmm. will show rioting yep. and how they managed to take, you know, how they've labeled Antifa, which is not an organization that exists in the in the real world. Um, and they've turned them into a terrorist organization. In fact, Trump designated Antifa terrorist organization, how they won't engage on how protest invariably gets ugly. And this is something that, you know, it's never talked about. They, they, they will say they refer to all the BLM protests as being violent and they look at Portland or wherever and they, they just show the worst bits, the, the shops being lit on fire. And this was the same years ago with the L.A. riots and Rodney King and various things, right? That The actual message, the the... the the soul of the protest gets lost and re-delivered by the GOP in this case as violence, that the, the, the left are violent. Can we just kind of explain the, 
explain this out because I, I do think that it's something that we allow them to get away with more and more. And you and I have discussed this a little bit previously about the specifics of protest. Because, you know, you mentioned Roe and, and how the protests were brief. Well, they were brief because no one could afford to take time off work. <laughs> and, and people people work so much in America that, that, you know, a day for protest is the most they can manage. It's much harder for people of colour. It's much harder for... And the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests, compared to the civil rights movement, were full of an equal, almost equal number of white people. Mm-hmm. So the, the tide is changing. But let's just deal with how the GOP kind of rewrites history when it comes to free protest in America. Well, I mean, any conversation about this has to start with a disclaimer, which is a lot of the violence and destruction that you saw during the BLM protest was actually carried out by right-wing white provocateurs. I mean, this was this was a massive part of it, and, and it you know not shocking considering this is one of the largest protest movements in the history of this country, period. The amount of people coming out for it. And and I would go ahead and argue also on that front, the BLM protests were about police violence, absolutely. But it was also sort of um, the way that a lot of frustration over the pandemic was being vented, how the Trump, you know, administration was mishandling this and just basically throwing people into the maw of a generational pandemic. The Republican Party makes use of all this footage and all this rhetoric because It is a literal visual uh, video representation of the apocalypse that is necessary to fuel their politics because Republican conservative politics is based on apocalypticism, which is this. And there's two types of of information basically. There's empirical information, right, which says science has shown that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, right, provable facts. But then there's revelatory information, right? I heard this from God. And apocalypticism is a version of this. So for instance, you can say, look at what's going to happen unless you give me my way, right? We're on the wrong route right now. Unless you give me total power, this is where we're going to end up. And you'll notice what happens in all of this. Like, you know, we had like this brief moment where the Democratic Party was like doing these gestures toward BLM. We all remember Pelosi and everybody sort of kneeling for a couple of minutes, right? They never actually endorsed anything that the BLM movement was actually pushing for. Defunding the police was decried by every politician almost within the Democratic Party. They couldn't get away from it fast enough, right? There was no actually defunding. There was no actual redistribution of of wealth. You know, this idea that there are district attorneys who are going light on crime because they're Marxist or they're being paid by Soros. That's not true. So what ends up happening? And this, the, the Republican Party is very brilliant in this. They understand who the Democratic Party is and how it must function, which means you, you say that the Democratic Party is light on crime and then the Democratic Party allocates millions upon millions of dollars towards law enforcement. And you'll notice that somebody like a Joe Biden is constantly giving more money to law enforcement, touting them as the answer to all solutions. Now we have this, quote unquote, border crisis. Biden has specifically gone out of his way to tell people, along with Kamala Harris, do not come here. You should not come here. You're not going to get asylum here. But the Republican Party knows that by fainting towards this, it will terrify the Democratic Party and move the Overton window further and further to the right, which is what has happened here. We've actually reached the point now where the Democratic Party is not just Democrats. And that used to mean poor people 
labor unions, people of color, people who who saw that the system wasn't fair. The Democratic Party now consists of, I guess you could call it center left, but it's not even that left, all the way to former die hard powerful Republican operatives, including Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal now is telling the Democrats how to do this and caucusing with them. So you've seen the Republican Party just pull the Democratic Party further and further to the right until we live again in not just basically a center-right society that's moving further right with every single day. And Biden has, you know, I, I remember him saying things like, I won't defund the police, I'll refund the police. You've heard him say that. Yeah. And and the, the words Green New Deal will never be uttered. You know, the rest of the world is getting on with it. And this is and just going back to the United Nations General Assembly this week, which is massive, you know, and, and America, thanks to Trump, you know, Trump wanted to pull America out of NATO, came this close. Uh, the UN specifically has a responsibility to try and make countries work together for the safety and prosperity of the world. And Guterres is, is firing a kind of warning pistol into the air and just trying to kind of wake people up. And, you know, tr- tragically, a lot of the stuff that the GOP are criticizing, you know, are claiming that they will fix, Biden is already doing. He's already fixing it. He's already, as you've said, he's already put in a lot of... Uh, investment into these areas that the GOP claim they will, which they won't because they just rely on trickle-down economics. Uh, And we know that that doesn't work. And in fact, the the new prime minister in in the United Kingdom has bet the entire country on a a new policy of trickle-down economics, and and it's going to crash the economy. You only have to look at the exchange rate at the moment to see where that's heading. So I, I, I recognize that there is this kind of it's a bit of a, like a miscommunication between what they're saying, what's actually happening, what they're offering is, and whether they're going to do anything about it. Yeah, and and to go back just just for a brief second, I mean, Joe Biden is a really interesting sort of lens to look at this through. You know, this idea that Joe Biden is like soft on crime or whatever. Joe Biden was one of the major architects for the crime bill in the 1990s, which led to the mass incarceration state that we, you know, are still dealing with and haven't dug ourselves out from underneath. Bill Clinton, for instance, was absolutely part of this neoliberal consensus. Um, If you actually look at the history, Clinton was like going around telling Democrats, you have to stop with redistribution of wealth from the top down. We have to be Reaganism with a human face. And actually going back to the presidential elections, part of the reason that he defeated George H.W. Bush is because he was both on the left and the right of H.W. Bush. And he just continued on the legacy of Reaganism. Like that, that understanding of that period is colored by one thing, which is the Republican Party realized Newt Gingrich, Rush Limbaugh, uh, you know, all, all of these people, they realized it truly doesn't matter what the Democratic Party does. You know, because they're basically carrying out in a lot of ways Republican light uh, legislation and or programs, right? No matter what, the game continues forward. It doesn't matter what they're actually doing or what they say or what they stand for. You can paint them as wild-eyed leftists and socialists who are coming for your guns. They're coming for your things, all of that. You look at Barack Obama. They treated Barack Obama as if, you know, he was a Marxist puppet. And Barack Obama patterned himself after Ronald Reagan. You know, every every speech that Obama gave would have multiple paragraphs about how capitalism worked and we just needed to work harder. I mean, this is Republican sort of ideology throughout. 
But they figured out that through their media and through their appeals and through their fear mongering that they didn't have to fight these people. They didn't have to, you know, fight over the control over the consensus because Democrats were much better at carrying these things out while appealing to people, right? Like putting a happier face on it and more empathy on it. I feel your pain, right? But the Republican Party could simply create straw men. They could create something completely out of nothing, which means that they don't have to campaign against Bill Clinton or Joe Biden or Barack Obama. All they have to do is carry on that apocalyptic fever dream that we're talking about. The problem now, though, is that uh, the GOP are increasingly becoming exposed as a as a far right and fascist party, which they kept hidden very well for many, many years. Right. But it's now the, the cracks that have not they're not just beginning to show these are these are huge fissures. And I and I recognize that. You know, the word, you know, we've, you and I have talked about how fascism is never spoken about, and it is now being used, and it's being used by the President of the United States, even with the word semi in front of it. And, you know, that's, that's his prerogative. But I'm very interested in Republican voters, the ones that are not fascists, the ones that are uh, traditional fiscal conservatives, the ones who have been caught up in this uh, MAGA movement. That, that, because, you know, Americans like to compartmentalize. Everything's so binary. You're either over there or you're over there. And it, life is not like that. And no political party is going to change a country or people as quickly as in November. And everything's going to be different the next day. You know, countries take decades to evolve. So let's just go to Donald Trump for a moment, because he's been in the headlines for multiple, you know, all the wrong reasons, I would just say. Um, he uh, did an interview with Sean Hannity on Wednesday that was broadcast where he claimed that presidents can declassify documents purely by thinking about it. He's, he, he, he said there doesn't have to be a process, the, you know, the process of declassification. This, this is his defense. Um, the judge carrying out the review, as we know, of the, uh, of the search of Mar-a-Lago, Raymond Deary, this week told Trump lawyers that they must provide evidence documents in question um, or sorry, they must provide that the, the evidence that documents in question were declassified or he will presume that they are not declassified. He said, I guess my view of it is you can't have your cake and eat it. So um, there's, there's, there's been a lot of exposure for, for Trump. And we're going to talk a little bit later about um, Letitia James and her, her civil case against the Trump organization. But let's just focus on the the man who is being broken in public. I mean, this, this interview with Hannity was, was just really not what Donald Trump needed right now. This was proof, and I've said it time and time again, he is completely bonkers. He, he should never have held office. He's been given all of this um, kudos because he's a former president, but he should never have been a president. He is not the right character or he's too unstable. And it is amazing, Jared, that we didn't get nuked. And how that didn't happen, I have, I have no idea. Let's just talk about the exposure of, the, of this leader of the Republican Party and how his, his financial crimes, but also his theft of official secrets is going to affect the Republican voters. What's the mindset, the thinking of the people that are MAGA Republicans, but also those who are not, who are just traditional conservatives? Well, so first off, I, I think what's happening with Trump right now, this absolute avalanche of, of scandal and legal problems, 
I think is really indicative of something, which is how ready the system is to move on beyond Donald Trump. And not just Democrats. I'm not just talking about critics. I'm talking about the Republican Party. I'm talking about the power structure within the United States of America. There are a lot of people who and who knew that Donald Trump was a buffoon. They knew that he was absurd. They were embarrassed by him. Every single day, they spent all of their time cleaning up and, you know, uh, engaging in fealty with him. And I'm Including talking about Lindsey Graham. You know, Lindsey Graham, uh, your these, Mitch McConnell's. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. They were really grateful to have him because you needed a figure like Donald Trump, uh, the proverbial bull in the china shop, right? Donald Trump went in without any consideration or respect for institutions and revealed the guardrail simply didn't exist. You could do anything that you wanted at any given time and there were no repercussions for it, right? Like the Democrats weren't going to necessarily go full bore after this. You weren't going to be held legally accountable, those types of things. And we know in America, our legal system, our political system, it's all tailored to the interest of you know the wealth class, right? The fact that all this is happening I think is completely dependent on the fact that Trump didn't just retire to Mar-a-Lago and, you know, show up every now and then for photos. They do not want him to run for president of the United States again. And as a result, it has made him vulnerable to the consequences of his actions. I think what is happening, though, is the, the, the way that this is occurring, I think the Republican voter, because – Human beings tell themselves so many stories to make it through the day. Stories about themselves, story about the th stories about the things that they do, the things that they believe that they don't even believe, you know, the, the, these hypocritical ideas. I think the Republican voter is going to tell themselves a pretty incredible story going into probably 2024, which is, you know, Donald Trump was gruff and kind of ridiculous. And I thought he was kind of, you know, uh, offensive and improper. But you know what? He has proven that the state is biased and these people are acting in bad faith and that they're criminals and he exposed this giant sinister conspiracy, something along those lines. I salute him for what he did and now I'm going to move on to somebody who is better, more disciplined, somebody like a Ron DeSantis. So I think there's a lot of mental gymnastics that are taking place here and a lot of sort of moving around of ideas because – Part of what's happening is we, we everybody likes to pretend that the Republican Party is the most disciplined group in the world. They're engaged in a civil war right now. There is a massive realignment that's occurring. And, you know, on one side, you have a Mitch McConnell who going back to the neoliberal consensus that we talked about. And on the other side, you have just absolute extremists like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters and anybody else that people like Peter Thiel want to, you know, bring in. And these people want to move the Republican Party away from Mitch McConnell and even further right. And so what you'll end up finding is that the Republican voters will sort of start to, I think, identify themselves as what they believe is some sort of a, a coherent mass. These are the things we believe and whatever we need to do to fight that conspiracy that Trump obviously exposed will go that route. Meanwhile, there's so many things happening underneath the surface. But the American mind particularly, I think the way they process this, it's stories. They tell themselves stories about who they are, why they vote the way they do. And meanwhile, underneath, there's so many more complicated things that are driving these deals. Well, they didn't even realize that Lindsey Graham was going to announce a national abortion ban until he did it. I mean, this, to show the level of dysfunction, he was pretty much out on his own there. And then had to do an awful lot of backtracking and there was an awful lot of denial. Even Mitch McConnell said, well, you'll have to ask Lindsey Graham. That, that is not a way to win an election. But as you say, they're cheating behind the scenes. So it kind of doesn't really matter. Yeah, Let's talk I would say, 
Go I, I would just say very quickly, I, I yeah. don't think Mitch McConnell would necessarily mind if the Republicans didn't win in November because one of the things that's taking place and, and you'll see these leaks every now and then, Anthony, there were like these – I don't know. There were like eight stories that came out a couple of months ago that Mitch McConnell was uh, demanding that Peter Thiel go ahead and fund the rest of the campaigns for J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, two absolutely disastrous candidates who stand in opposition to Mitch McConnell and, and his entire political project. I think in a way, this sort of ideological civil war that we're talking about, the Republican Party is not particularly interested in having to act on a lot of their ideas that are going to have electoral consequences. Right now, I think they're very happy making the Democrats twist in the wind as the crisis that we're discussing worsens because I think there are political ramifications to that and eventually you reap the benefits. You need someone to come along and quote unquote solve it, right? That strong man authoritarianism. So I think they're – I think I don't think they're particularly that worried about people like Masters or Vance sort of falling by the wayside and all of these Trump candidates. I mean my god, they want to sort of get this uh, presence out of the body I think. Well, maybe they need another two years to distance themselves from Donald Trump. You know, if, if he's having all of all of these financial problems and being exposed for fraud and, and you know, stealing documents. There was, a, there was a line I read. It might have been written in The Washington Post or maybe The New York Times. But and this was very telling. I, I haven't really heard anyone say anything about this, but apparently he's created a replica of the Oval Office on the second floor at Mar-a-Lago. And, and this was so... Just from a psychological perspective, if it's true, and it's not necessarily true, but if it is, even if it's a bit similar, you know, blue curtains or something, I don't know, maybe a, a resolute desk, who knows? But it, it kind of really plays into the, the kind of um, the psyche of the man who really just enjoyed pretending he was the president and still would like to pretend that he's the president. And they call him Mr. President. He wears the pin and he, you know, in Mar-a-Lago, he is the president. And and actually, you know, that's the safest place for him. Um, but if he was to be on the national stage or the international stage, then we're going to see more of the effects globally that Trump, because, you know, many people say that Trump is entirely responsible for the war in Ukraine. You know, he, he he's behavior, the way that he connected with Putin, created this bond with Putin. And the moment that was severed, that was Putin's opportunity to kind of take advantage. So, you know, he's so dangerous. And it's almost as if it's a, it's a tragedy that, that all of the crimes that he is responsible for whilst in office are not the ones that he is going to be tried for. The crimes are lying about stealing official secrets, claiming that he can declassify when he can't. It, it, it's, it's, he's, he's, he's perjuring himself on a daily basis. Yeah, and I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, um, one of the reasons why he's not going to be held responsible for his crimes in office is, I'm sorry, but you start holding American presidents like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like holding them accountable for the crimes they commit while they're president. That is a that's a weird little can of worms to open up. And nobody is interested in going down that road. And actually, Donald Trump, I was just saying this on my podcast today, a very Shakespearean character. This is a person who has enjoyed incredible wealth and privilege their entire life with no ability whatsoever, no actual talent. 
wasn't particularly interested in becoming president of the United States of America. It's well documented that this was a, more or less a publicity stunt to increase his wealth and possibly start a media company. But of course, our media needed him for entertainment and profit. Uh, we had foreign actors who were very interested in having this idiot as president. And through hook by crook, you name one thing or after, after another, he ends up in the Oval Office. And what do we see? And I think this is very telling and we're going to look back on this. He wasn't interested in doing the job. He didn't prepare. He didn't actually like listen to anybody. He kept very, very minimal hours. What did he enjoy? Ceremonies. He liked having people come see him. He liked giving people trophies. He liked eating hamburgers with a bunch of college football players, right? The best thing in the world for Donald Trump, and this is kind of amazing, would have been to be an ex-president. To have them play hail to the chief as you come in from, you know, the back nine and people shake your hands and want to take pictures. That's what he wanted to be, a mascot. He wanted nothing to do with the actual work. But you remember that line that he said recently where he said, I don't understand it. Ex-presidents are supposed to have a great life. And he he couldn't understand why everyone was after him when he looked at the other ex-presidents and they were were doing really well. He could not conceptualize why that is. And why it might be his fault. And I don't even think he actually wants to be reelected president, except for I think he feels like he has to be. And, yeah. and as a result, that's I truly believe that's why all these legal consequences are coming to pass. If he would just go away, if he would just <laughs> go ahead and say, yeah. no, I'm done. Thank you very much. There's a real possibility that some of this stuff wouldn't have happened or it might possibly go away, right? We all know – like the, this thing that has come out in New York and obviously we have to talk about it. Donald Trump is not the only wealthy person in the city of New York, not even the only real estate developer, not only the, the only businessman who has inflated his wealth and assets in order to get beneficial treatment and loans and you know these favors. This is something that – it's basically uh, more or less the foundation of the American economy. <laughs> and and the fact that this is what he's getting caught on as opposed to any of the number of crimes that he committed while president of the United States of America. I mean, it would it would take an entire show just to even list it, much less go in depth. I think it's really, really telling that this system and particularly the Republican Party, very happy what he showed them, very happy what he presented and what he created. And they're more than ready to use it, including Christian nationalism, authoritarianism, you name it. But they want him to go away. They need him desperately to to back away from the stage and let the professionals take over. There was an event that took place just talking about his crimes while in office, something that people never really talk about. You remember after the killing of Soleimani and and, uh, he was boasting about this. uh, An aircraft was shot down a few days later that was uh, that was that was leaving town and and there were i think around 150 people souls on there who 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 died and you know a lot of um academics directly uh, connect the the shooting down of that aircraft as a revenge act uh that um was as a result of of the uh, the Soleimani um murder or or execution or whatever you choose to call it and 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 this is you know the this is where the death of of humanity gets lost in the weeds of the showmanship yep. this is the tragedy of donald trump's presidency is that you know people are having to live with the consequences of of his government and and families have been torn apart you know we talk about the specifics of oh 
parents being ripped from their kids at the border. Well, that's a visual, you know, it's a little bit like we were saying with the BLM protests and, and you know, the televisual element of it makes it very digestible for Americans. And, and, and it's all, um, you know, weaponized by the GOP. But the reality is that there are millions of people, not just in America, but around the world who are now having to live with the consequences of Donald Trump's uh, um, government and his um, period in the White House. And it will. And the war in Ukraine is another example. And he is completely oblivious. He's like a bad driver who just keeps going and there are just crashes happening all behind him and he'll just get to his destination. For me, that's the biggest tragedy of this, Jared, is that he will not be held to account. I mean, there are some who say he should be in The Hague, you know, or the European Court of Human Rights or any of these, you know, put on trial, international trial. It's never going to happen, is it? No, I, I I don't believe it is, and and I I want to be wrong about that. We, you know, whenever there there people say, well, here it is, here's the thing that's going to bring down Trump, I always say, you know, our entire system is based on protecting people of wealth and power, particularly presidents. I think one of the things that Donald Trump really, there's no other way to put it. One of the reasons that he makes us sick, one of the reasons we reject him sort of as a human being and a construct is because I think he reflects back a lot of the things that we would like to live in denial about, about how this system works and how things occur. You know, leading up to the 2016 election, I think a lot of us just wanted to believe there's no way somebody like this could ever become president. You know, you we knew it was a racist nation. We knew it was a sexist nation. There's just no possible way that the system would ever lead to this. And then everything that he did was just another indictment. You know, it was one thing after another that we just kept saying is like somebody has to stop this. Somehow or another, this has to be dealt with. And I look at somebody like a George W. Bush, speaking of people who should be in The Hague, right? This is a person who not only criminally invaded another country, but set off a worldwide campaign that killed God knows how many people, you know, ruined how many lives. But you actually look at what happened in the wake of Donald Trump. We really went about rehabilitating the image of George W. Bush, right? You know, he wasn't Trump. You know, he shows up in these like moments with like Clinton and Obama and they're hanging out before the inauguration in 2021, you know, and and and, and oh, man, maybe we need to reevaluate him. Look at George W. Bush hanging out with uh, Michelle Obama, right? Yeah. And in a way, I think there is a longing to sort of go back to that, like a time before Trump, because some of the things Trump said, like so, for instance, after Jamal Khashoggi was was killed in such you know cold-blooded brutality, Trump was asked about it and he said, what am I supposed to do? They give us tons of money. And that thing is, like, what a disgusting thing to say. It's just so – he was actually doing a deal with Saudi Arabia at the time. Was at it was the like time. a six, $600 million arms trade deal. And, and Jamal Khashoggi was, a, was a, an inconvenient distraction to the deal. Exactly. And here's the terrible part about it. And I hate to be the person who points this out. He wasn't saying anything that hadn't been the ruling principle within the United States. We know what Saudi Arabia does to people. We allow them to do that because they are our partner in the Middle East and incredible amounts of money and resources go back and forth. What we hated Trump for was that he said the quiet part loud. He didn't have the ability to sort of paper over those things, right? Which again is one of the reasons why I am trying to warn people about somebody like Ron DeSantis. He'll get up. He'll 
He'll say the right thing. He'll look good in photographs. He won't go on these weird, bizarre rants that Trump – you know, Trump all the time would just say things off the wall. It was embarrassing yeah. to have him as president. The problem is when you take the authoritarian structure that Trump came to represent and built around himself and you hand that to somebody who looks good in pictures and is capable of talking and, and going out and not embarrassing themselves, you start to realize that what he did was – he sort of cleared the way for this. He showed us that all bets were off as long as you're able to operate sort of within an expectation, which I think is – I think that's the terror of Donald Trump is that, 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 that inability to sort of make himself fit in and hide sort of the infrastructure behind him I think, I think is truly terrifying and, and grotesque. There's really no other way to put it. But he set an example not just for America but for the rest of the world. And this is what people fail to realize is that yep. it's like a domino effect. And countries that previously were just, you know, were, were, were maintaining balance have now tipped into either populism or extremism. Uh, Brazil is, is an example. Um, uh, Turkey is an example. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to a point now where he's made it OK because people do look up to America around the world. You know, American democracy was always hailed as this kind of great bastion of, of success. And now American democracy is arguably uh, so compromised that people are nervous to even go out and vote. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's an important thing to, to talk about here, which is you're exactly right. In Hungary, Russia, Turkey. Yeah, Orban. It, like, I mean, it's like it's the worst, well, right? And I mean, you have Orban showing up in the United States of America at CPAC and tutoring <laughs> the Republicans on how to create a, – a, and they call it illiberalism, right? Taking yes. away democracy out of the, the equation. Here's the even more frightening part of that. Those are the places where it's overt, right, where these authoritarians have come to power. But you actually go ahead and you look at so-called Western civilization, these Western powers that are supposed to be at the forefront of all of this. The United States of America elected Donald Trump and we currently have an anti-democratic authoritarian movement growing over in England. I mean, my God, you don't get to Brexit without straight up white supremacist paranoia and xenophobia. Look at look at France, where, you know, these far right politicians are gaining ground with every single election. We're starting to see it in one country after another. And that goes back to one of the things we started this conversation talking about, which is you do have an impending crisis. All of these societies understand that things are changing. The question now is what tack do you take? Right. Do you go ahead and reform and move more towards egalitarianism and democracy or do you double down on the system but the authoritarian elements come to the forefront? So in, on some, in some cases, it's countries that are gone. God knows if Hungary will ever come back towards anything approaching democracy. I mean the Putin situation is one of the more fascinating things in modern times, right? Like this is a dictatorship that presents itself as a democracy. Will it ever get away from this? We don't know. But we're starting to see in these countries where supposedly democracy still exists, they're all trending in the wrong direction. And all of the signs are out there that unless something happens and unless there's a concentrated effort to beat this thing back, this isn't going to be in one country. This is going to be spreading throughout. This actually goes back to something that Antonio Guterres said in his, in his speech was about the Internet and, and social media and, and the spread of misinformation. And that this really is the pox that is enabling 
these authoritarian characters to abuse the, the, the truth in their own countries. And Putin does it with the control of information and the Internet. China does it with control of the Internet. And, and it, it's got to a point now where people are like, well, which reality am I living in? Well, that is very dangerous, isn't it? Because there you're kind of operating on, on multiple levels. You know, as it is in America, we have two narratives and arguably a third one, which is like the deep state one or the conspiracy one or the QAnon one, which is like right. down there. But, but we have two realities. And if you expose yourself to the other side, and I try and watch as much um, you know, right-wing media as I can, as I can stomach, it is a parallel universe. And it was, I mean, I know that Fox had its big kind of movement in the in the late 90s. But it now is, I mean, the, the, the horse has bolted, the genie is out the bottle, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube, Jared. Yeah, and, and I want to point something out. And again, going back to um, the research I was doing on the Midnight Kingdom, one of the really alarming things that I found was that as there were impending crises of the orders, right? Like you, you you constantly see throughout history, there are these moments where everybody says, things will never change again. And they look around and it's the 16th century. You know what I mean? Like there, there's so much this getting right to happen. There are these malleable moments where those orders face a moment of crisis, where they can't perpetuate themselves and something has to change. Almost inevitably, this always follows sort of the emergence of a new type of media, whether it's the printing press, you know, the radio, the TV, now the internet. And one of the things that you start to notice is as you approach these crises where you have a decision to make, are you going to become more free or less free, right? That reality that we're talking about, it becomes very malleable. You know what I mean? Like there are points in, – and in, in a human can understand this. There are points in your life where it seems like nothing could possibly ever change and then there are other points where it's like literally everything could change at any given moment. These malleable reality moments are what spur these big apocal changes, right? So now we sort of have a question which is what is reality? It's been splintered out. These, these alternate um, sort of realities you're talking about, these conspiracy theories, I want to point out one common thread among all of them. They're all pointing towards sinister evil satanic forces that are controlling things, right? And you'll notice in all of these conspiracy theories, they never mention capitalism. They never mention profit motives, that people do things not because they're evil, but because they're interested in, you know, uh, enriching themselves or empowering themselves. They think they're doing the right thing. These conspiracy theories are hiding the real true causes of this crisis, of why we're moving up to this sort of precipice, this abyss, if you will. And as that happens, they actually can replace reality. Going back uh, and, you know, I always hate to bring up Nazis because people sort of roll their eyes and they say it's the Nazis. One of the reasons that they gained power was they posited a new reality. And the new reality is, is well, Germany didn't really lose World War I. We didn't really suffer a defeat back here. It was because the Jews caused this and the Jews are causing us our problems. And people said, yeah, OK, that's a pretty good reality. I want to live in that one. And then they moved in it and it completely changed their society. They, they rely on optimism and fear, the two, the two kind of polar yeah. opposites. They use those to, to kind of encourage the, the, the shift. 
Right, exactly. So, you know, you, you take something like a QAnon, and QAnon is actually a more active version of Christian apocalypticism. I was some of this earlier today, which is you on, in, in one way in Christianity, you say you're waiting on God to return to settle accounts, right? You got to do your thing. Eventually, this big thing will happen. Don't worry about it. QAnon says, hey, you can watch all of your favorite TV shows, and you can scour the internet, and you can be the change. You're a digital warrior, and you are going to bring about the new awakening. Right. And actually, that gives you something to do. It makes you feel powerful in a world that is very, very much beyond your own personal control. And I'll tell you, it prepares everybody for authoritarianism, the destruction of democracy, because you'll notice all these conspiracy theories, Anthony. It's the idea that liberal democracy is a vulnerability. It's a weakness. If we allow people to vote, we might have the, you know, they might be manipulated or bought off or whatever by the outsider, which is always a Jewish person like George Soros. Shocking. And these conspiracy theories create this new narrative. The problem is, look at some place like Russia. Look at Hungary. It's the same conspiracy theory. It's the exact same thing that the Republican Party, Trump, all these people are, are, are peddling. And why? Because it works. And when an entire society is forced to accept that, it becomes almost unescapable. You know, it, it becomes this sort of like ordering force and that new illusion of reality. So we have, we, we have something that's, that's coming down the pike here. And that, the storm is coming is the phrase. The that storm I keep is saying. coming, as yeah. they would like to say. And the right. and the truth is, it's a lie, but they're making it true. You know, mm. like when you believe in something enough, almost as a religious faith, you begin to make it true. And in this case, like that that sort of malleable reality we're talking about is like one of the first things to happen when you reach these moments. So let, let's finish up by looking at the, the the landscape currently. I mean, Joe Biden is a. I'd say he's an institutionalist, right? Yeah. He he is somebody that very much, and that speech. I, I'm very keen on your reaction to the to the speech that he gave that uh, right wing media <laughs> claimed was a kind of communist speech because of the red lighting behind him, and they used a very different photograph to the one that was the the official photograph. But you know, he really is going on the attack now. He's done with this. He's a little bit like Guterres in Attenborough. In his, he's like he's in the last stages of his life. <laughs> I, do, I do think this is very interesting. This is why we need elder statesmen and women is because it's like they're going to just be like, look, I do not want to leave a legacy of destruction. I want to leave a legacy of optimism. And so he's just going for it. He's like, you know, MAGA Republicans, semi-fascists he he's not pulling any punches because he he really genuinely believes that there is a threat of uh, of 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 fascism because it's already happened it's not actually a threat is it? it's already happening when you're disappearing people off the streets of portland or gassing you know american citizen protesters and you're the president well it's a bit late right mm-hmm. But I'm still interested, despite everything that's, you know, distracting us at the moment, you know, with with Trump, we haven't even had time really to talk about this civil fraud suit bringing down the Trump organization, which can only be a good thing. But but whenever something happens like that, because Letitia James, you know, they're saying it's partisan because she's a Democrat and she's up for election. And so the, the, the actual facts of the crime are irrelevant. It's all about finding an excuse. And my question, and there is a question here, and it's actually a similar question to the one that I posed earlier about this movement to the right. 
is is what happens to the normal non-MAGA Republicans? Who are they going to vote for? Are they going to switch to Joe Biden's party? You know, will will is that too much of a stretch, or is he centrist enough? to be able to uh, welcome in some of those um, traditional conservatives. Yeah, I think there was some movement in 2020 uh, from the Republicans over to Joe Biden. Like, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, particularly people in their 60s who have seen Joe Biden and understand who he is, you know, the ones who haven't been, you know, bought off by these conspiracy theories. I think I think part of what's happening uh, and, and I was very I was very heartened to see Biden start talking about fascism. You know, I think that showed that mainstream America is starting to understand that something's wrong here. But well, the networks some, didn't carry it, remember? Well, so he might have been talking about it but no no hey, you have to you have to show law and order rerun sometime you know what i mean <laughs> right. those are more important i right. i think in in a way um the problem in all of this is that Biden understands that there's a problem but if you parse out his language even going back into the primaries he truly believes that the republican party as a body is fine that there's just it happens to be a cancerous growth that it's yeah. Donald Trump and yeah. actually you'll you'll notice that that was the message during the January 6th commission hearings they didn't talk about the donors who funded all of this and the infrastructure that created this attack on the election so in a way he is right that this is a fascistic movement but he's also wrong in the idea that somehow or another the Republican party isn't riddled through with it the the bigger issue here goes going back to how you originally started the question the democrats are absolutely institutionalist at this point they and and I want to go back to the 1960s or 1970s and tell democrats then that the democratic party would become you know the defenders of the institution like i i would love to see people sort of lose their minds over that well, they should but, be the rebel alliance, shouldn't they? I mean, well, that's... And the problem here is this. What you need to do to defeat Trumpism and what you need to do to undermine this authoritarian movement is take away the material conditions that make it possible to be a populist movement. And again, you know, I had mentioned that Bill Clinton ran on the left and the right of George H.W. Bush in 92. Trump ran to the left and the right of Hillary Clinton. He would go out and say, I'm going to get rid of NAFTA. I'm going to make sure that you get jobs. You guys have been screwed. You need someone to go in and fight for you. He didn't mean it. He never once meant it. And he got in power and he completely handed over power and wealth to the wealthy. Well, he didn't even know what NAFTA was. He never read it. Right. And here's the problem. The Democratic Party, because they're defending institutions, they're trying to reinstall faith in a system that everybody knows is completely flawed and unfair and unequal. And so as a result, you have a bunch of Democrats who are like, why aren't you helping us? Like, why aren't you fighting this thing? They cannot fight it because they have one arm tied behind their back. They're trying to feed people the same sort of message that people have rejected. But if you go in and you actually start to talk about changing things, making it more equal, or at least trying to move things in the right direction, you cut out the material conditions that made it possible for Trumpism in the first place. Because all of these political – like everybody likes to talk about left versus right as a spectrum. It's all over the place right now. It is so knotted up in ways that like – completely baffles preconceived notions. It's like right? a it's like a cat's cradle of nuance. And I and I yep. and this is why I get so frustrated as a as a commentator and as a as a um, a migrant myself, you know, is that it's it's so childish. You know, the, the the debate is so childish. The offering is so childish. The language is so basic. And you know, we thought that it was just Donald Trump who had the, you know, the 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 body of a 
of, of an 80-year-old and the, and the intellect of a 10-year-old boy. But actually, it goes beyond that. It goes right through the GOP. And, and when you hear even people like Rand Paul, you know, taking on Dr. Fauci, there's no intellect behind this. It, it, is, it is playground mentality. And a country like America, which is so, has so much potential and, and is so mighty, needs a, a greater level of understanding. And do you know what my solution is? Because I thought of it the other day. I realized it when, uh, when um, these two cases, you know, Letitia James and um, Fannie Willis, the, the, the next uh, case that's going to come up. Black women is the answer to all of our problems. Because white men have failed so horrifically uh, over generations in, in America. And I, I really feel like that, that women generally, because of hopefully more empathy, more emotional intelligence, a greater understanding of the, of the world, because they've had to play second fiddle to white men for so long. But a black woman would really galvanize all of that. I don't know if Kamala Harris is the right person. She might be the wrong black woman. But that, that's kind of where there will, you know, there'll be uproar from certain sectors. But in terms of bringing Antonio Guterres's um, dreams to reality, we need to see this across the world. We've seen it in New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern. You know, we, we, there are Angela Merkel in Germany. There are moments where we're like, Let's just let the girls' team do this, please. It's enough with the boys already. Yeah, and to break this down just very quickly, um, you know, one of the things about white supremacy and particularly white male patriarchies and, and white supremacy is that they're not actually productive. They actually like get rid of talent and capability and they, they limit the results. So one of the things that you actually can make a case to is racism actually hurts everybody including the white people who are suffering and taking lesser wages because they are engaged in like a, an exploitative society, right? So on one hand, the Republican Party message is this. We can't make your life better. Like we're not going to help you. We're only going to pass tax cuts for the wealthy. We'll make you this promise though. We'll hurt the people that you don't like. We'll make sure that the worst parts of what is happening will fall on people who don't look like you, who don't live next to you, who don't think like you, namely, you know, people of color, immigrants, women, stuff like that. That argument can be absolutely destroyed by, hey, guess what? If you can, if you can go ahead and find it in, in, in your heart or in your mind to move past these old, outdated, absolutely absurd notions of white patriarchal supremacy, um, you can make more money, you can live in a better country, and we don't have to spread the pain towards one group, right? There's actually a self-interested motivation in all of this. And it so happens that White people, because they, they have such a hard time dealing with that notion and getting over that, they're so sort of wired for this idea of, of white privilege that they're actually destroying not just themselves. They're destroying their futures, their children's futures. And to go ahead and bring this thing around full circle, literally the earth. And, you know, any future for the human species simply because that absurd, uh, uh, ridiculous notion of white male supremacy, they simply cannot move beyond it because they're terrified of what that could possibly lead to. Okay, we have to finish. I'm very thrilled for this conversation. I was just thinking about Donald Trump's face when he realizes that the two people that bring him and the Trump organization down are, are black females. It's like, it's, it's the perfect end to the story, isn't it? You know, the, the, these, these uh, litigators who have got his number. 
Oh, that that I I was actually thinking about that today. Um, it 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 has. It, I'll just say this has to be hard for him. But okay. but poetic justice concerning the Trump organization has been built on exclusionary racist policies from the very right. beginning. That's the full circle we were looking for. Thank you very much, Jared Yates Sexton. Uh, always a pleasure, and hopefully you'll come back and join us again sometime Thank you, on, on The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can hear me tell you the three most important stories of the day while you make your coffee and leave an iTunes review. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.